Have you ever felt like an imposter? Like it was only a matter of time before other people realised that you had no idea what you were doing and exposed you for the fraud you are? Yep, me too. I'm Claire Conroy and this is episode 5 of Women Talk Work, a podcast that seeks to explore the complexity and diversity of Australian women's experiences of work. Imposter syndrome is a fairly broad term for a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist even in the face of information that indicates the opposite is true. And it turns out that once you start talking about it, you discover that imposter syndrome is actually incredibly common, particularly amongst high-achieving women. So, in this episode of Women Talk Work, I decided to do something a bit different. Rather than an in-depth interview with a woman about her career, I've decided to go deep on the topic of imposter syndrome. Joining me in this conversation is Jacqueline Jago, a Canberra-based executive coach who left her career in the public service to start her own coaching consultancy in May 2014. We chat about our own experiences of imposter syndrome and what we each do to avoid being controlled by the voices of self-doubt. Our conversation also covers other topics including gratitude and generosity and living and working authentically. So if you've ever experienced that feeling of being a fake, I hope you find this episode provides some useful information, tools and insights to support you to be aware of to consciously analyse and to positively respond to your imposter syndrome. There are lots of references in the podcast to authors, posts, TED Talks, etc. You can find all of these links at womentalkwork.com slash episode five. So thank you, Jacqueline, for coming on board and joining this episode of Women Talk Work. We're going to do something a little bit different today and that's to kind of talk about a specific subject and that being imposter syndrome. <laughs> but before we before we get into that, I'm I'm curious to hear how you answer the question. When someone asks you, what do you do for work? What do you say? Um, oh, that's a great question. I started, I left the public service last year in May, May 2014. Um, and I had this big dream of being an executive coach because I love to have conversations with people, particularly with women. So I left the public service um, with this dream of becoming a coach, assuming that because I love it so much it would um, all flow really easily. You know that saying, Mm. do what you love and the money will follow. That's only partly true. So um, um, I'm obviously still an executive coach, so I talk to people about their careers, particularly high performers. Um, But the thing that's happened for me since I left the public service is I've had to grow a new person um, who's also an entrepreneur and a small businesswoman. Um, so I've been in this very interesting space of supporting women to be better at work and ha- happier at work and more fulfilled at work at the same time as I myself have felt like a total fraud as a business person. Um, so the irony of that's not lost on me. Um, and it's very much part of my coaching style to um, not set, set myself up as an expert or to say that I have all the answers. But, Claire, I think like you, I'm very interested in making spaces for conversations um, where um, we can all get to understand ourselves and each other better. Mm-hmm. So I have those kinds of conversations with people about work. Um, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious as to what what prompted the transition from the relative safety and security and comfort of the public service to kind of taking this this leap to become a, a coach? Um, you know, it's a little bit like that thing of um, almost everyone thinks they have a book in them, you know. Every, I think I have have often, when I've said to people I'm a writer as well as a mm. coach because, as you know, mm. I also am a writer, um, people say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to write a book one day. Mm. So it's a little bit like that. I think many, many people have this wish and almost... Um, an expectation that one day they'll make the leap and um, jump into creating some kind of um, dream role. Um, And a dream role outside of someone else's organisation isn't for everyone. Um, But, yeah, in in some ways I have done that really hard thing of jumping from safety um, into the precarious world of um, owning, being a small business owner. Mm. And what prompted it, um, you know... It was just a sense that I had so much to offer and just a very, very um, deeply held desire to offer that thing. Mm. So it's that famous saying of it. So I think it's Anais Nin, you know, the French writer, the 
Um, she's really interesting, actually. Um, <laughs> she's an erotic fiction writer, which all of your listeners should know. <laughs> right. Um, so she wrote something really interesting in around in the 1920s that um, at some point the pain of staying um, tightly closed becomes greater than the pain of growing because it is painful. Growth is painful. Yeah. And um, in some ways um, life pulls us in two directions and one of the directions is the um, desire to stay tightly protected um, and I think that has to do with our um, the human history of needing to protect yourself at a physical level and to recoil from danger. Mm. So for me, that's one of the kind of directions that our lives pull us in is to self-protection and staying small and keep your safe job. But at the same time, um, there's also this kind of subterranean wild river in each of us um, that pulls us in a completely different direction, which is to greater authenticity. There's this inner yearning um, to go somewhere or even some people experience it as a desire to return somewhere. Um, and this is part of the human experience. And the question is, which, which way are you going to go? Mm. Um, and the other question is, which way are you going to go? What does it look like for you? So for me, this is what it looks like. But it doesn't mean that for you, Claire, it looks like that, or for mm. anyone else listening, that it looks like that. Mm. So I think that at the sort of deepest level, the question is, what does it look like for you? That question to jump. If you were to jump, what are you jumping into mm. that is most authentic to you and your experience of where your wild river will take you? Yeah. So yeah. did you have, um, I guess, like supporters that were, you know, helping you or encouraging you or to make to, to kind of cross that bridge and to to make that jump I did I did um yeah I think I was extremely lucky lucky for one my husband was very supportive mm-hmm. um so um and I think that's critical if you um if you're in a relationship for your partner to be on board with you I think mm-hmm. it's very hard to do it mm-hmm. um without your partner being on board on some level although it's not necessary I think it's much easier um, my husband's also very pragmatic. He's Polish and um, not at all sentimental about money. And when I would say things like, oh, the money will come, he'll say, no, sweetie, money will not come, you will earn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he talks. I love the way yeah. he talks. Um, and so I have, I'm very close to my two sisters and my twin sister in particular would say often to me, what are you going to do with your one wild life? Yeah, the so, Mary Oliver. Yeah, poem. the Mary Oliver poem, precisely. Yeah. I have to put that in your... <laughs> put that in the show notes too. Yeah, put yeah. that in the show notes. And it's a, it's a thing that my twin sister has said to me many times, what are you going to do with your one wild life? And did that just build up to a point where you thought, like, like I've got to do this, that yearning was so great that you just, it just had to happen? Yeah, I think it did. I think it did build up and I think it's part of the process of maturing into fuller adulthood. Yeah. Um, so it was partly about turning 40, um, partly about having made choices that would support the life that I knew was coming. Mm. So partly um, the decisions that I've made about whether to get a mortgage or not and we don't have mm. one and the decision around um, having children or not and mm. we don't have children. Um and those those decisions are not easy and there isn't a right decision. Mm. So it's just a sense, again, of um, letting yourself settle into what you already know, mm. even if you don't consciously know it, letting yourself settle into what you already know about mm. where your life is taking you. Um, and letting yourself settle into what you already know is not what culture asks us to do. Culture asks us to succeed. And I think this is... This is why so many of us suffer so painfully from imposter syndrome. Mm. We're kind of pulled into this direction of succeeding, succeeding, succeeding mm. without any kind of consultation with what really matters to us yeah. and the level of sacrifice that's involved in actually following the golden thread of your purpose mm. and your clarity. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I had, um, I had tremendous support. It was financially really hard, mm. much harder than I'd anticipated. I had no idea about being a business person. Mm. So I had to create, I had, fortunately as a coach, you know, I have these skills and these tools around creating a new way of being. Mm. So I had to create, I kind of saw myself being a dud, <laughs> being a dud business person, no idea about marketing, um, 
the thought of cold calling in the early days of my business just filled me with horror. Mm. Um, I had such a fear of rejection. Um, but I also had these tools for creating um, a new way of being and a new woman and a new um, style of being an authentic businesswoman mm. um, so that I knew that I could grow into that mm. and that it was just a matter of time. Um, but, yeah, I did. I, I had I, I, a few times I sat bolt upright at 2 o'clock in the morning going, what am I doing? Mm. And that sense of lack, or, lack of authenticity, mm. um, which comes from being out of your comfort zone to some extent, um, so it's, it's contradictory. In the act of trying to live as authentically as I could, I created this huge imposter who didn't have a clue what she was doing and was faking it a lot of the time. Mm. So is that your, I guess, moving on to this topic of um, imposter syndrome, is that your, your strongest kind of sense or recollection of really feeling like an, an imposter? Um, what a great question. It's certainly my most recent. recent yeah. But no, I wouldn't say it's my strongest. Mm. There has been a lot of fear associated with um, going out on my own as a coach, but um, for me, the sense of imposter, my own experience in my life of imposter syndrome, and the reason I'm so interested in this topic, um, is really rooted in my early childhood experiences, I think. Um, So I grew up with my brother and my three sisters in Vanuatu, which was then called the New Hebrides. Mm -hmm. So um, I went to a couple of different schools. At my first school, we were the only Anglo kids at a French school. Um, And looking back, I think the teacher was quite racist um, against Australians, against Anglo-Australians. So just been sort of um, noticing that she was treating me and my twin sister differently from the French kids and not really understanding why. But noticing also that there was um, one of the local kids, um, one of the um, Indigenous New Hebrideans, um, the name's changed, it's now called Vanuatu. So the Vanuatu Ni kids in the class were also down the back with us. Mm. Um, so looking back, it was that sense of she had othered us, if you like. We were outside of um, the group that she considered, um, you know, the, the ones that belonged there. Mm. So very early and very strong experiences of um, not belonging. So then we moved schools. My dad got a job as a um, plantation manager, a copra plantation on a different island. So we moved schools. Um, And then we found that we were the only white kids um, at a school um, full of um, Indigenous indigenous kids. Um, But it was quite different because... Um, the local kids were so inclusive. So it was a very different cultural experience of going from a very sort of standoffish um, environment to this very sort of inclusive environment at this second school where we were the only white kids. Um, And then moving to Australia when I was six years old and then finding ourselves in a mining town where smart kids were kind of the pariahs. Mm. So my early childhood experience of fairly sort of constant dislocation into new communities Mm. and finding ourselves on the margins of Mm. the community. Um, So you just learn to adapt really quickly and to kind of take on the behaviours of um, the other kids. And um, the upside of that is that I can now talk to anyone um, and connect with anyone. But the downside of that was that it really took me a long time to piece together a sense of self that felt authentic and integrated. All these different parts of myself kind of took a long time to come together, I would say, um, not really until my 30s where I started to feel like, you know, it was a bit of a tapestry that was all knitted in together rather than um, myself as a patchwork with all these different pieces that I um, couldn't really fit together. Mm. So... Um, so do you remember what that kind of felt like, that sense of not belonging? Mm. Like how did that physically or emotionally mm. feel? Um, well, I, the feeling of not belonging, I think we all know how that feels, don't we? Um, it's a, I think it's a really deep part of the human experience yeah. and um, the fundamental um, self-preservation instinct that drives us as humans to flock into a pack yeah. Um, and to belong to a tribe. So, um, you know, that feeling of not belonging, I think, is one of the most painful experiences that we can have as humans, um, psychological experiences that we can have. 
Um, and for me, the feeling is um, a kind of paralysis, um, a kind of not wanting to move, mm. um, a kind of kind of sick churny feeling in my tummy. Um, and just incessant chatter, like just nonsense about you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you're going to yeah. fail, other people don't like you. Um, so, Claire, you said a really interesting thing um, in our discussion last Saturday. Um, at For those who are listening, um, Claire and I went to a um, conversation last Saturday. Um, I run a little meetup called Women's Inspiration Circles and the conversation at the circle last Saturday was about imposter syndrome. So Claire and I and some other women went and talked about this topic um, in order to warm ourselves up for this conversation. Um, and Claire said something really amazing. Do you remember what that was, Claire? Was this about the, like the fear? Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, um, about imposter syndrome being a fear about what other people might think of you and, and particularly, I guess, a fear that other people won't think that you're enough or not not being good enough. Um, so I think all of those experiences you just shared about um, like the, the chatter, like I'm not good enough, the kind of the feeling like slightly nauseous, um, yeah, like, a, like they, they absolutely are the, I guess, the feelings that, that one has when they're, I guess, feeling this this thing known as imposter syndrome. Um, yeah, and, but I think what's really interesting about imposter syndrome is that there's, it's it's a, a fear of it happening rather than it necessarily actually happening. Um, sometimes, yeah, I think one of the interesting things about imposter syndrome, it, it, it's, I guess it's a projecting a, a, a future or, or possible outcome that, that hasn't actually necessarily been validated in, in reality. Mm. It's a kind of fear of the future. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. most fear is, or fear of the future or fear of the past. So you're right, a yeah. kind of... The imposter syndrome experience yanks you right out of, out of the present yeah. and what's really going on. But, Claire, you said some very gorgeous things in your blog. Oh, about being a mum. About being a mum. Well, yeah. Well, that's certainly, I think, possibly one of my strongest senses of feeling like an imposter. And because in becoming a mum, like, I, I was a mum, like factually, yes, mm, I, I mm. you know. Biologically child, speaking. Biologically, yeah. I, I was a mum. There's no kind of question about the, um, no subjectivity around that 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 statement. But I, I felt like I was playing the part for a very, very long time um, and I felt like everyone else got it. Like they were, they were all um, in, in the role of mum and, and they, they weren't kind of dealing with that same thing. But... Um, yeah, it was interesting for me that it was, I guess, my overcoming my sense of being an imposter was through living the experience of being a mum day in, day out. Um, and eventually, I guess, that in, that imposter, if you do something for long enough, eventually you become that thing. Um, so I imagine that's the same with, you know, certainly my experience of talking to different women who have started small businesses, the comments you've made about like what am I doing, um, you know, selling, you know, selling my products or my services, um, that that's a really common experience early on. But eventually um, through, through enough action they become, they become part of you and, and, and don't kind of hold that, that power anymore. Mm. So how are you going with is it Ella? Yeah. Ella? Yeah, well, I, I definitely feel like a mum. I definitely don't feel like I'm – I know what I'm doing much of the time, but um, I, I guess I've yeah I feel um, more legitimate in that right. in that in that role. Yeah. So, is part of your greater ease around um, motherhood um, more? Uh, it sounds like you've let go of your expectation that you should know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's probably part of it. Yeah, 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 and and I think. Um, also just kind of realising that, that perhaps I'm actually not that different from other women, like, I, like that, that my experience isn't uncommon. Um, and so, like, yeah, I, I guess I'm interested. How did you discover that, that your experience is not uncommon? Oh, I guess like a lot of reading and, and talking to people and, um, yeah, especially older women in my life, like, mm. you know, like aunts and, you know, my mum and stuff that, that no one really knows what they're doing. They just kind of figure it out as you as you go like and how could you like there's no there's kind of no one way to do it no no manual mm. um 
and you know just realizing that uh like of course it's going to be different like I'm an individual and my my daughter's an individual like there's no kind of formula that could be applied to um to our to our relationship Mm. um there's just Claire's way of being a mum yeah yeah and Ella's (laughs) way of being your daughter which may be evaluated by some experts as um you know (laughs) has not been quite right but um oh they're out there aren't they (laughs) yeah oh absolutely absolutely Claire I'd like to pick on up on something you said just before um and some of our other conversations around this Um, It occurs to me that, and we said this last Saturday as well, imposter syndrome is like an umbrella for a thousand different things. Um, And in my um, writing about this, um, I published an article in Women's Agenda called um, Imposter Syndrome, How Jane Austen Tamed the Tiger. Um, So in my, so I've been thinking about this topic a lot lately and um, the umbrella of experiences that kind of, or the the myriad of experiences that sit under this umbrella of imposter syndrome. Um, And I've kind of come to some conclusions around some of it, some of it's true. Some Some parts of the imposter syndrome experience are actually true and some of them are just made up in our heads. Mm. Um, And... Um, I'm really interested, particularly at the moment, it's kind of a new thought for me, in the parts of the imposter syndrome experience that are actually truthful and helpful and um, allow us to contact something in ourselves that's valuable. So um, you mentioned before that you read an article recently that was helpful to you as well. Yeah, this article called Stop Worrying and Love Your Imposter Syndrome. Um, That actually, yeah, maybe there are some helpful elements to imposter syndrome and that it's about, I guess, um, providing space for that kind of critical reflection and, um, and a, like, I guess, a broader awareness about how you fit in a, in a group or a community or, a, you know, a workplace. Um, so, yeah, perhaps that noticing actually is really valuable. Certainly I think there's a lot of emphasis on overcoming imposter syndrome and I'd like to talk to you about mm-hmm. like the techniques and strategies <laughs> that, that you've used to, yeah. to to tame the tiger and also your reflections on Jane Austen yeah. um, but I think that we shouldn't jump to this idea that imposter syndrome equals bad mm-hmm. and and should be mm-hmm. eliminated and, and overcome should be killed should be killed <laughs> so, kill the inner imposter yeah so it's so, very loving isn't it <laughs> So your, you know, situation, you know, becoming a small business owner, feeling like a little bit of a fraud in this. Oh, role. enormous fraud. Enormous feeling fraud. Feeling like a complete phony. Um, why, why do you think you felt like a phony? Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot, of, there are very many business products out there for small business owners. Um, and many of them... Um, sell you a story of your innate fabulousness Mm. in order to get you going and in order to get you to step up, as Tony Robbins would say, um, or to to buy their product to some extent too. Like um, we'll we'll write this copy for you so you can help get your blog going and it'll be world famous and you'll have a 1,000 followers and so on. Um, So once you sort of start engaging on social media and if you're online at all, you just get bombarded with all these messages Mm. about how great you are. Um, Isn't it fabulous? You're in this um, relatively small cohort of people who are brave enough to start small businesses. And you really do believe it. You do Mm. think, oh, yes, I'm fabulous and, um, you know, I'm really brave and and I'm doing a good thing. And all of those things are true. But um, what happened for me was that that I developed... um, an expectation that um, I would be able to make all these cold phone calls and get lots of business Um, because that's what I was kind of hearing from all of Mm. these um, sales pitches that were coming in from various people who wanted me to buy their products. Um, So I was actually shortlisted for the Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Award in Canberra, um, which was judged just a few months ago. And in preparing for that, I kind of, and I apologise to the Telstra folks because they did a fantastic job and I met some fantastic women, um, but I had this experience of really switching off from the process about two weeks before the judging mm. and I didn't understand it at the time and I sat myself down and I journaled and I tried to like warm myself up to the interview so that I could do a good job, but my heart was just not in it. Um, 
And reflecting on what happened, it was a sense, now I see it, these weeks later, it was a sense that I'd lost my way. Like I had really lost contact with the whole reason that I'd got into business in the first place, which was um, contact with that sense of really having an offering and really um, wanting to to offer it to the world and really to create a way of contacting um, other like-minded women and support women to grow into the women that they wanted to be rather than building a business that sold a product so that um, women could grow grow into these professional bots that were, were high achievers. Mm-hmm. So I lost my way a little bit, I think, and imposter syndrome was really alerting me to that. Mm. So it was twofold. There was the true part of it, which was I was a total noob mm. and some of the things I did in my first year of business um, I wasn't that great at mm. and there was a level of public failure there that goes with the territory mm. of being a, a newbie in business. Um, it's like learning to play the violin in public in mm. some respects. You're just going to suck for a while, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, and letting yourself have your failure. Yeah, I am going to be bad at this and it's just fine. So it's a different kind of archetype. Um, on the one hand, there's this archetype of this, um, you know, superwoman, heroic um, person running their own small business and getting rave reviews and writing really hyped up articles about how fantastic it is. So that's one kind of archetype um, and that can be really motivating. Mm. Um, But there's the other archetype which feels more restful and truthful to me, which is more about the novice, you know, Mm. the authentic novice who is finding her way quite carefully um, and feeling her way into an authentic um, business person and in my case, a more authentic coach, um, by really listening to what's important and creating routines in my life for renewing my contact with my offering and my gift. Mm. So when your orientation is generosity, it just feels authentic. But when your orientation is to achieve or be successful or get approval or to win an award, um, it doesn't feel authentic. Mm. And your life tells you that by making an imposter pop up. Mm. So what has the imposter manifest for you? um, To be perfectly honest, I get depressed. Yeah. 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 I made a lot of space this morning before our conversation because I think it's a really important conversation and I didn't want to come on this conversation with you and just like blow hot air about imposter syndrome because that would have been inauthentic to me I would have been showing up in this conversation as an imposter to talk about imposter syndrome yeah oh look I feel like a total imposter (laughs) (laughs) so um what was the question you just asked I thought that was a great one manifest for for me um so um um, the term imposter syndrome has less and less currency for me because yeah, okay. um, I feel like I've got to know the syndrome mm. to such a granular extent by having spent so much time with her and listened to her so carefully mm. and with so much love and attention rather than just say, I'll oh, go away, I shouldn't feel like this. Um, I feel like I've given her so much time and attention that she's kind of transformed into something else. And the thing that my inner imposter has transformed into is some kind of antenna that lets me know when I'm going down a route that is not aligned with me. Mm -hmm. Um, So this sense of personal alignment, I think everybody has. Everybody has it. Um, And the question is whether you're willing to commit yourself to those daily rituals um, and those daily processes of letting yourself have your feelings and contacting what matters to you and then building a life from that. Mm. So for my own imposter these days feels more like an antenna. Mm. And if the antenna, I mean, if if I'm pointing down the wrong way in my life, I'll get depressed. And I wish I didn't, you know. In some ways I wish I could just join the mainstream and do what everybody else seems to do, Mm. um, which is to work really hard, (laughs) you know, many hours a day. I can't do that. I get really depressed if I work too hard. So um, I have have very clear biofeedback about when I'm not living authentically. I get Mm. sick. I have autoimmune issues. Mm. Um, And that's part of 
my life has directed me in very sort of specific ways to spend a lot of time meditating. I've lived in monasteries kind of lot. Uh, I've lived in monasteries quite a lot. I met my husband in a Zen temple in Japan. Um, so for me, the feedback in my life around um, imposter syndrome has been just very clear, clear signals about um, creating health for myself by being as authentic as possible. Um, and I don't think that's an easy life, by the way. I don't think life is easy. Life is not easy for those of us who repress our authentic our authenticity, and nor is it easy for those of us who choose to um, make very sort of serious investigations of our authenticity. Neither of those paths paths is an easy choice. Um, But again, it's that thing of which pain are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the pain of staying small or are you going to choose the pain of growing? Yeah. Um, There are two just things I I noted down just in that that conversation or that um, description you were giving of your imposter syndrome that you, you called it her mm. and you kind of really gave it a, like a, mm. a personification and I think that that's really interesting and um yeah kind of to think about like it's it's like this little voice this little friend and mm. um yeah I guess it just made me think that there, there are different ways that you can kind of if you if you think of imposter syndrome in that way there's like different ways that you can I really like it I really like the kind of the visual analogy of being able to say you know say to someone like piss off go away I don't want to deal with you right now Mm. or to be able to say to inquire and say oh Mm. okay I hear you got something to say Mm. like what is it or to be completely consumed by Mm. um what this 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 person this voice has Mm. to say so Mm. I um yeah I was really interested Mm. that that you kind of chose that description Mm. and the other thing was that um that you spoke about you know I I wish I could live like everyone else is doing so Mm. I'm kind of interested in your thoughts about the role that comparison Mm plays Mm. in in imposter syndrome Mm. wow two great observations um it's one thing i learned in my coaching training actually um the process of turning an internal habit into an object that's over there Mm. that you can come in relationship with Mm. is a really powerful move Mm. Um, so what it does is it creates distance between you and the habit and it helps you understand at a very deep level that it's not you, mm. that it doesn't have you, you have it, mm. which gives you a lot of choice around how you engage. Um, and the way that you learn to engage skillfully with anything, any internal habit that has you, that controls you, is you put it over there. But you don't kick it over there no. and spit on it over there. You put it over there and say, hi, who are you? Yeah. And it's that gorgeous broomy poem about um, things visit from time to time. You know that poem about? Um, I don't, but I. It's a beautiful poem. It's, there are words in it like the difficulty comes, their guests, mm. a depression, a meanness, um, and just from memory, the Rumi poem says something like, let them in um, and then let them go. Yeah, don't let them stay. Like yeah. Them. Or Suzuki Roshi, yeah. who's a Zen teacher in the US um, who founded San Francisco, San Francisco Zen Center where I've spent a lot of time. Um, Suzuki Roshi says, you let them in, but you don't serve them tea. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are ways of being very loving and very accepting and very generous with these habits of ours. Yeah. Um, that give you the capacity to understand that they're not you. So that sense that they're personal to you, that it's Mm. who you are, I am the imposter syndrome, Mm. it's me, it's my imposter syndrome, Um, getting the capacity, visualising it, giving it a name, um, creating it as an entity that's a little bit over there, Mm. um, really kind of helps it loosen its grip on you. Yeah, yeah. I, it just reminds me of um, Elizabeth Gilbert's mm. TED talk about creativity and how she speaks about the muse, um, and like the visits from the muse. Like it's kind of really similar, and, and treating it in that way, like a a thing that is a little bit outside of you, but should be respected, um, but that doesn't control you. And there's the wonderful story she tells in that TED Talk, and I can't remember who the musician is that she references, you might remember, about him driving along the highway and getting the inspiration for, you know, some song and just being able to say, like, hey, Muse. Do you can, mind? Yeah. I'm like, driving. I'm driving right now. Can you come back at a more convenient time? I love that story. Um, yeah. A, I think it's an extremely apt analogy 
Um, these things that visit us are not us. These things that visit us are just life talking to us. And a happy, useful, authentic life um, is all about coming to some kind of um, peaceful relationship with these visitors, um, neither fighting with them and wishing they were dead, nor thinking that they are us and we shouldn't feel this way, um, and nor inviting them in and serving them tea and going, oh, right, you can drive my family car even though mm. you're crazy because imposter syndrome to some extent is a bit insane. It's mm. sort of telling you that you're unworthy whereas, in fact, you're human and, and you're here, therefore you're worthy. Mm. So the fact that, that you are is enough. But imposter syndrome says, oh, no, you have to go and do all these really amazing things um, in order to earn love. So there's some level of insanity in imposter syndrome um, and everybody knows the um, only way to heal insanity is through love and generosity. So coming into a loving and generous relationship with all our visitors, whether it's um, creative inspiration, as in that fantastic um, Elizabeth Gilbert TED talk, or whether it's, um, you know, our imposter who shows up from time to time to tell us something that might be useful or to just let us practice our generosity if mm. it doesn't feel useful. I mean, that's a useful thing to do. Um, you just spoke about doing things to, you know, doing certain things to to earn love, um, and I think that there's, you know, perhaps a different or related side of that about um, doing it, you know, doing certain things to earn um, like legitimacy or respect or authority, particularly in a professional context. And so, I, I certainly where that's, you know. Um, played up for me is in terms of the idea about qualifications you know if I get this qualification then I am like legitimately able to to claim this and we spoke a little bit um, last weekend about kind of job titles and the gatekeepers yeah gatekeepers and the the kind of um the yeah having to pass through some kind of hurdle whether that be an institution's hurdle or a you know someone else's hurdle in order to be able to kind of claim a, a title and I think that that's where it's really interesting from a small business perspective because suddenly you don't have anyone giving you that title. You put coach on your business card and suddenly you are. that's what you are. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm kind of interested in your, your thoughts about kind of claiming different different titles or the role of gatekeepers in, in your own life and in the, the lives of the, the people that you've worked with. Yeah, we live in the world, don't we? And the world functions um, in certain ways. And I think to be um, effective in the world, you kind of have to master its rules. So, you know, I would never say to myself or to a client or, you know, anyone um, in my orbit, oh, no, that doesn't matter. Mm. <laughs> you just have to be authentic, you know. I don't, I don't think that's useful. Um, it's about as useful as saying, oh, do what you love and the money will follow. <laughs> it's, a, it's great in theory, but it isn't the way that our world works. Um, and I myself, my, my 20s were full of um, me seeking certifications in order to build credibility for the kind of life that I wanted. Um, and I look back now and I think that was really a, really a good thing to do. I think it's a great, thing, great way to spend your 20s, get mm. educated, mm. Um, find out who you are, take some risks, do all, as much crazy stuff as you can that's legal. Mm. Um, so I think um, your question about um, titles and gatekeeping, um, for me my response to that is all about, well, we do live in the world and mm. we have to be realistic about that. Um, and at the same time, we're beings in the world, we're not necessarily doings, even though the world of work, you know, which mm. I um, say that I'm a specialist in, that's what's on my business card as an executive coach, um, that world exists and that world um, rewards doing. It doesn't really reward being. So the experience of authenticity um, comes upon us when we have a focus on being and who we are authentically. Um, so we live, we live in... It's kind of as if we have um, two feet, one in the world of work and where doing is rewarded mm. and the other foot we have, I mean, I guess we're kind of like octopi. Mm. <laughs> we, have, we have a foot in many different worlds but um, 
for, for me, what's been most alive in my own journey has been trying to find some kind of harmony between the world of work and all this accomplishment, which came to me early in my career. I was, you know, a barrister by the age of 27 and um, ran a really high-profile project in Queensland um, that was very successful. Um, and then my sister died and it all lost meaning. So my sort of quest since then and all of the meditation I've done and all of the... Um, writing I've done and my path has all been been all about bridging, finding some kind of bridge between these two worlds, the world of doing and the world of being. Mm. Um, so I th- it's kind of like, um, you know, being alive to the complexity of us, mm. of your, of oneself. Um, and um, it is actually really important to acknowledge that those titles are powerful and that they're mm. necessary. Mm. Um, but at the same time to recognise that um, if that's all you've got, that's not a lot. That's really not a lot. Mm. It might be a lot in terms of your success, but in terms of your happiness and your authentic self and your path, it doesn't really add up to that much. Yeah. yeah. I think um, the relationship between being and doing is is really interesting for me in that I feel like that's, in part how you overcome imposter syndrome like my experience with a mum like I I guess it was through doing the act of mum caring for a child day in day out that I became a mum and I think it's you know sometimes similar for new business ventures or um or you know a whole range of things it's through through doing through doing podcasts I become a podcaster so I think that it's um yeah kind of doing and Mm. becoming is is Mm. really is really interesting and and the order in which they happen like Mm. yeah it's not sometimes great great observation the the doing happens first and then you become it you don't have to be it in order to do it yeah yeah that's yeah no that's a great observation and um a really useful thing to think about um I, there's a coach whose podcasts I sometimes listen to in the US um, called Dana Theus, um, and I was on, listening to a call of hers a few weeks ago, and she said something really useful about. She was actually talking about um, communicating confidently, mm-hmm. um, and her take on confidence is that um, in the act of experiencing yourself doing something over and over, that's how your confidence grows. Yes. So, of course, the first time you do it, you're going to feel like a newbie and a dud or whatever, um, and to some extent you'll be masking that, and that's where a sense of inauthenticity and imposterhood and fear mm-hmm. of being found out and discovered mm-hmm. comes from. It's masking, um, the masking that we all do in the early stages of a task when we really don't know what we're doing. Um, so Dana Theus's take is that we do things over and over and the mask just falls away mm. over time because we experience ourselves as, as confident. So um, that sounds like um, really similar to what you've described in your own um, journey with motherhood and mm. experiencing yourself over and over um, as a mum and um, find it, wiggling your way into your own authentic sense, sense of what it means to be a mum. Mm. And I loved what you said about... Um, being in conversation with other women because mm. I think that's a really important um, part of growing some resilience to imposter syndrome is, um, you know, just get it out in the air and just speak it out mm. into the ear of a trusted listener. Well, we were talking before we started recording in both of our experiences how many, once we start talking about this, how many women say, oh, that's the thing like I, I thought, thought it was I said, just me yeah you feel like that too mm. um so that there, there really is a shared experience which perhaps isn't isn't obvious because of the the masking as you described it um but it's through talking about it and connecting um and once you create a tribe a tribe of women or a tri- a, a, a group of people all having the same experience Mm. Um, then it's mainstream mm. and then it's no longer something that is kind of marginal or um, that sense of belonging is created mm. in that sharing of vulnerability. Um, and vulnerability is a powerful space, you know. Vulnerability is and authenticity are like brother and sister. They go together. Mm. So creating a shared experience around vulnerability is a, is a, is a place of very, um, it's a very powerful space to contact the experience of being human. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So talking, talking. Yeah, and and reflecting like 
on the experience of feeling like an imposter and what you were doing and, um, yeah, I guess creating that space for growth through, th- through reflection and, mm. and observation mm. is really important too. Mm. So I guess moving towards some, like, practical strategies <laughs> that, that take people away think about. The takeaway points. Um, you know, I think that we've covered a few, which is, like, connect with other people and, like, yeah. and realise yeah. it's, it's not just you. This is a pretty... Yeah common human experience and be really cluey about who you connect with okay people who um who you feel warm towards and um if you have habits around connecting with people um that are critical of you you're going to feel like an imposter a lot Mm. but if you um really honor your sense of who who is your ally um and create allies around yourself. And not all women know how to do this, by mm. the way. You'd be really amazed at the stories I hear in coaching sessions around women who um, have formed habits around choosing people who are critical of them mm. and and having those um, people in, in their spaces. But you have a lot of power around the people that you hang around with and the nature of the circles that you create around yourself. And it's part of why I do coaching circles because I think it's miraculous. Mm. You create these circles in these cultures around yourself of people who have your back, people who support you, people who affirm what's authentic to you, mm. people who when you say this is important to me say, oh, I hear that's important to you, great, rather than, oh, no, that's dumb, oh, no, you shouldn't feel like that. Mm. So the, the choice of the listener and the choice of um, who you have in your circle I think is a really critical one, particularly for women because mm. we thrive in groups, women, mm particularly. I mean, men do too, but there's something very particular about women and the company of women that lets women bloom. Is that, um, I don't know where it originated, but that saying, you know, you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with, that kind of, that thing. Um, So how do you suggest that women in particular go about finding those allies or identifying who in their existing network would be an ally and how do you go about formalising or do you need to even formalise mm-hmm. that kind of ally relationship? That's a great question. Um, I, um, oh, and thank God for TED Talks, hey? <laughs> <laughs> There's a fantastic TED, TED Talk by Eve Ensler. Yes. You know Eve, you would know Eve oh, Ensler, yes, the I vagina, love, mo- yeah, yeah, we all yeah. love Eve Ensler. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I love her TED Talks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Eve Ensler has a TED Talk um, I can't remember the title. I've no doubt you'll find it, Claire. Is or, it the one on finding happiness in body and soul? It might be. One? Well, I'll tell you about okay, it and we'll, we'll yeah. find out which one it is. Um, but I was, I was very, very influenced by that. Um, and the more I think about it, the more I realise what a profound influence that TED Talk had on me. She said this thing about whatever you want in the world... You have to offer it to others. It is that story. Is that it? Yeah, it's had a huge influence on me. Really? Give away the thing that you seek the most. Yeah, you've got to give away the thing that you seek the most. That's how you find happiness. That's how you find happiness. Yeah, precisely. So for me, um, the experience of um, creating um, generosity or creating generous circles of women that's what I want. I, you know, I grew up in a very generous circle of um, four sisters, Mm. so me and my three sisters. Um, and I think that's part of my affinity with Jane Austen because so much of her stories are around um, or so much of her personal story as well as her fiction um, is sort of um, come is driven by this sense of sisterhood, um, you know, the closeness of her sister, her relationship with Cassandra and these... I've got to admit, I don't read fiction. You don't read fiction? I don't read fiction, but yes. Oh, okay. I, I, so, I, do know, I do know the kind of the premise of the, yeah. So something I love about Jane Austen, and I yeah. think not just because she's a, you know, masterly writer and a, has a beautiful sense of the English language, but um, powerful bonds between women, particularly sisters, mm-hmm. show up in her books over and over. Um, and, you know, I'm one of four girls and we're all born in the space of um, a little over two years, me and my twin sister, my sister Helen, who's 13 months older than us, Mm -hmm. and our sister Catherine, who's Mm -hmm. 13 months older than Helen. Mm -hmm. So the four of us were this tight little unit. Mm. So for me, my natural way of being and feeling at ease and well is in the company of really great gals Mm -hmm. because my sisters are powerhouses, all of them, amazing gals. So now that I live in Canberra and all my sisters are spread across the planet and um, Catherine died when I was 28, she was an opera singer, um, my sense of mission is very much around um, creating um, powerful circles of women 
um, and as a coach, supporting women to grow those capabilities of mutual support because it's, it's not that easy. We're also fractured from each other. We've lost all the bonds of community because we all move for work. Um, we no longer are with the women, the girls that we grew up with. So I'm all about recreating that and, you know, I'm doing that because that's what I want for me, so I'm offering it. Mm-hmm. So I saw events and I'm going, right, what do I want? Okay, I want groups of powerful, fantastic women that just love and support each other and are really, really um, wise and generous in the way they do that. And I thought, well, how do I create that? Mm-hmm. And then I did a big detour into lean-in circles, you know, this mm-hmm. is Sheryl Sandberg model and was very influenced by that and thought, well, I could adapt that model t- so that there was actually um, a coach facilitator running rather than a, um, an untrained moderator. And I do actually have a lean-in circle for women lawyers. Um, but the, the coaching circles that I run is all about me um, offering the thing that I want. Mm. Um, and, na- you know, um, 18 months into my business, um, it's the staple of my coaching business. It's the thing I really, really love to do. Um, and I get to participate in these, in growing these amazing circles. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the things I've done um, and that has really, I feel, grounded um, my coaching practice and my business in a really strong sense of authenticity. It's coming from a service orientation, mm-hmm. coming from a commitment to be giving. Um, it just feels different and it as I said at the start of our discussion, the experience of um, giving authentically um, is a really powerful experience and a very pleasurable experience. It's completely different from the experience of giving in order to get. Mm. Um, giving in order to get, you can immediately recognise because you feel disappointed if the other person doesn't reciprocate. So I went up to a homeless man on the street the other day and said, I just bought a coffee. I said, hey, dude, do you want my coffee? And he said no, and I had no sense of disappointment. Mm. So, I, And for me it was like, I had this little thing of, oh, I'm not at all disappointed. Oh, I'm so, like that experience of authentically giving, which was Mm. so pleasurable to me. Then I had this really pleasurable feeling of recognising that it had been a really authentic, generous Mm. gesture because I had no sense of disappointment when he said no. I've got a story that's that's the exact opposite. I remember um, going, like being at the bus interchange to catch the bus home and there was a, a couple there and they said, oh, we don't have any money. Can you give us some money for a bus ticket? And I said, I don't, I don't have any money, but here I'll, um, I won't give you any money, but I'll, I'll pay for your bus ride. You're catching the same bus as me. So I, yeah. so I just paid yeah. for us all in one hit. And as we were kind of getting on the bus, the woman started to say, I don't know how. And I thought she was going to say, I don't know how I'm going to repay you or thank uh, you. Right. And she said, I don't know how I'm going to get home. Can I have some more money? And I just thought... <laughs> Right, like, and I felt that right. kind of that, that disappointment right. that I thought there was some kind of, um, yeah, I, I, I expected some gratitude, right, I guess, right. and, and I didn't receive it and, yeah. was, and was disappointed yeah. by that. So it's just funny yeah. that you mentioned that story. And the um, receipt of gratitude is very gratifying and yes. it feels really kind of um, almost holy. Yeah. But um, at the deeper level and the level that's harder to contact, um, it's not an experience that um, creates energy. It's more an experience of creating an expectation that the world owes you something. Yes. It, and that that stuff's really hard to kind like of... unpick from... Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And there's not much in our culture that supports us to do that because, mm. you know, we hear all that stuff about, oh, it's better to give than to receive. Mm. But, um, you know, there, if, you, if you look for experiences that will teach you about unconditional giving... Um, you, you really have to, it's, it's a kind of a lonely path and it requires a lot of focus and a lot of watching yourself over time to see, well, um, and yeah, and noticing things like the mm. kinds of anecdotes that you and I have just been talking about. Mm. But, um, yeah, I remember, I remember about almost 20 years ago now taking a meal down to the homeless man that lived in the bus shelter near my building when mm. I lived in Brisbane. So I put this really nice spaghetti bolognese into a nice china bowl and took it down to him and I said, would you like some dinner? And he said, no. Mm. <laughs> and I remember feeling so hurt and going back into my building feeling really dumb. And I, But a part of me was also watching this going, oh, if this was an expression of authentic generosity, why am I so bummed right yeah. now? Like what, what choice did I give him to say no to me? Yeah. And if he had no choice to say no to me, on some level I was being coercive. Mm. Um, so yeah, getting to, getting to know your own capacity for generosity, 
and having some focus in your life on giving unconditionally mm. and anonymous gifts are great for that, mm. like doing things for people and they won't know it's you. Mm. So, I mean, it's a, it's it's an unorthodox answer to your question about how do we deal with imposter syndrome. But most powerfully, I think, growing your capacity to be generous and to um, live from a place of service, I think that's much more powerful than any, any you know, hot, hot tips that you might read mm-hmm. <laughs> or that I've, you know, previously written about. Um, you know, because you, you write articles for online newsletters or whatever and um, you kind of are trying to speak a language that people understand and people do want to hear hot tips but fundamentally I think the truth is a little, you know, closer to the heart of life. It's, it's, it's all about generosity and cultivating generosity and getting to know when you're being generous and when you're just manipulating someone in order to get gratitude back from them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so... In the interest of providing the hot tips, <laughs> or, the hot or, tips, what are they? Or, 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 you know, I guess you know, bringing this this discussion mm-hmm. to a close. Mm-hmm. I think that for me, some of the key takeaways mm-hmm. and um, are around building those allies, but doing mm-hmm. that in a way that's really generous in giving away the thing that you you want the most if you want supportive people in your workplace, then start by being supportive to others, but do it in a way that in a way that feels that you can be genuinely supportive and then they're not just, you know, um, I guess fluffing them up or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were some other good tips about thinking about how you can visualise or personalise the feelings around imposter syndrome, notice them and be conscious about a choice about how to engage, how and when to engage with them. You don't have to be ruled, um, ruled by them. And... There was another hot tip that I thought of, but it will come back to me. Is there anything else that, um, that you think that we should... Oh, there's should, so many hot tips. Oh, so many hot tips. Um, like other things that you think that we should add into the discussion about um, or, or like I guess the takeaways about from the conversation about imposter syndrome. So, so purely sort of I, putting my coach hat on and getting a bit less me- metaphysical, which is where I sense you're now taking the conversation um, to round it off, um, there are just concrete things you can say to yourself. One that really works for me is I value humility. Mm. So in, when you're in that situation of feeling like an imposter, it's like you're putting this expectation on yourself that you're going to be great at something. And just kind of winding that down a bit and saying to yourself, I value humility. It's fine for me not to be good at this. I'm just fine. I suck at this and that's just fine. I value humility. Mm. Um, That's powerful for me. Um, Or I don't expect myself to be good at this. Um, I also think um, developing some attunement to environments that support you and that don't is a great thing to do, especially... Mm. um, the earlier you can do that in your career, I think, the better. The earlier you pay a lot of attention to what kind of work environment you're willing to work in. Mm-hmm. And if you find yourself in a bullying environment or an environment of blame, imposter syndrome will stalk you everywhere. Um, so it's really useful to take notice of if you're in an environment where you feel imposter syndrome a lot, it's too much to ask that you yourself transform that. It's probably more useful for you to um, notice what honours you and find some environments that reflect that back to you. That's a mistake I made in my own career. I think I stuck it out in very difficult environments for a long time thinking, oh, I should be able to cope with this or whatever. Um, so now I, when I think about who to work with, I'm very focused on who they are, um, whether they're authentic, whether I think we're a good alignment in terms of having an orientation of generosity. Um, so being really cluey about your environment, I think, is a really key thing. Um, on that, uh, there's a great Richard Glover wrote a great piece called "Step into the Sunshine," in which he talks. I don't know if you've read this piece, but he talks about planting some seeds in two identical pots and putting them on either side of his front door. And the way that the sun hit the veranda just meant that they got slightly different amounts of sunshine. One of these plants blossomed, grew this huge thing. And the other is just a, a few twigs. And so he drew the analogy in this, um, in this piece about the importance of positioning yourself in the sunshine. And, um, yeah, because it, 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 it's, it's not just kind of up to you. There are kind of environmental factors, as you Absolutely. described, that will either make you flourish or wither. Mm. 
Mm. So that's a, a great piece. That's a wonderful, wonderful, and thank you. That's really powerful, a really powerful visual. Um, another thing that um, has worked amazingly in, in my coaching circles actually is this trick that we've learnt to do together called putting yourself on the map, which is communicating authentically where you stand in relation to another person. And that doesn't mean you sit them down and say, these are my deep feelings and I need you to understand where I'm coming from philosophically. It's not that complex. It's as simple as letting your face communicate how you feel. Mm. Um, Or if someone hurts you, to say, ouch, instead of pretending it's fine. Um, And so we've been doing this in one of my coaching circles and the women come back once a month, you know, and they report amazing stories. Um, One woman, for example, um, her supervisor said to her in front of other colleagues at level, um, at the same level as her, oh, um, I'm not going to give you the temporary promotion while I'm away because you're part-time and I assume you wouldn't want that. And she said she was so upset at this assumption um, and so outraged as a feminist, she couldn't say anything. Um, But what she did say, had the presence of mind to do, was just say, ouch ouch and she watched her supervisor then be really taken aback and go what what whereas if she'd like had the imposter thing of going oh no it's fine it's fine it's fine with me um or had the um really charged emotional response of what do you mean you're not going to act me up you know what do you mean you're not going to give me the promotion um but just authentically communicating where you stand in a way that's powerful um and in a way that's respectful For me, that's a really powerful antidote to imposter syndrome. Let people know who you are because they trust you then and you trust yourself. Um, I think one of the hardest things about dealing with imposter syndrome is the, um, the presence of shame in imposter syndrome. And shame is a feeling that um, by its very definition, few of us can cope with or feel. So when shame comes up, what our automatic defensive response is to just repress it. So repressing feelings has the consequence of actually entrenching them. It's like Velcro. Um, They just stick to you. Um, And the experience of shame can be a really, really tricky one to work with. And um, people who are interested in getting to know their shame, and I think everyone should do this because we all have it, we all have shame. It's part of the human experience. even though the tendency that we have to push it away means that few of us think it's part of our experience. Most of us go, oh, no, I don't have a lot of shame. Um, well, we do, we all do. It's part of the way that we've been socialised into group group identities. Um, so if you're interested in shame, go and read everything by Brene Brown, the fantastic Brene Brown. Um, I was have been extremely influenced by her um, and not only her wisdom and her kindness and her humour but the rigour in the work that she's done around shame. She wrote a PhD on shame and, again, two fantastic TED Talks about shame. Um, When I listened to them, I was just blown away. Um, So in dealing with imposter syndrome, I reckon there's a piece of work there for people who are interested in it to get a piece of work there to get to know their own shame response. Um, And for me, the most powerful part of healing shame is just to let yourself feel it. Um, so just breathe it in and just label it, oh, it's shame, and just say, okay, I'm feeling shame right now, and just breathe it in and let it stay and then breathe it out. Um, and there's a little um, tail in that process where you can just come into contact with that feeling that it's really personal, it's my shame. For me, that's the most powerful part is when I say to myself, oh, it's me, it's really, it's my shame, that feeling that it has me. Um, and just making a visualisation of sitting it over there on the couch, it's actually not mm. me. It just believes it is. Mm. Um, and for me, sitting my shame on the couch over there and just sort of smiling at it quietly means it tends to sort of get up and mm-hmm. and leave. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's that's painful. It's painful just to to sit there with it, you mm. know. So and I, I think that's, for me, that's the most, the hardest work but the most powerful work is just, developing the capacity to um, be in contact with your own feelings, Mm. let them be there, let them let go of you um, and move them in a direction of, um, you know, being an object over there on the couch. Mm. Um, So um, getting a bit less identified with it Mm. because it feels so personal but it really, really isn't. It's just Mm. a habit. It's like imposter syndrome. It's just a habit in the mind. Mm. And the more that you can become aware of that, the more 
you can exercise some control or exercise some choice is probably choice, the best choice, choice about how you yeah. engage with it. If imposter syndrome is driving your life, that's a really, really unhappy life. Mm. But if um, awareness and choice are driving your life, then you have power to um, to create a life that feels authentic, to create a life in alignment with the wild river mm. of your deeper purpose. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think awareness is a really critical part of that. Yeah, so, yeah I like that, point. And that analogy and maybe it's a good place to kind of rest is that it's not about eliminating imposter syndrome from your life. Um that would be very, very difficult to do. And, and actually there are probably some benefits, as we've discussed, to, to kind of feeling imposter syndrome, but it's about not letting them into the driver's seat. Yeah, like, that's right. That's right. Yeah. The question is who who will you let drive the bus Yeah. or who will you let steer the boat on this wild river, yeah. you know? Some habit of mine that tells you that you're not good enough and you need a smaller river or... Um, um, a wise guide who has very deep contact with um, who you are at a deeper level is willing to let you fail, is calling you to take bigger risks um, and is a, is, is a sure guide, a much surer guide than all the chatter about how small you should stay. Mm. Great. Thank you so much for mm. chatting imposter syndrome. No, it's my me. pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Now that I've had the benefit of re-listening to the podcast, armed with a notebook, I've actually been able to remember those key takeaways that I wanted to summarise. There are four. First, you're not alone. Imposter syndrome is a common feeling. Talk about it with other supportive people. Secondly, try visualising your imposter syndrome as a person or a being. You have a choice about how and when you deal with them. Third, take action. Sometimes the only way to overcome feeling like an imposter is to be one over and over and over again until you eventually become what you were pretending to be. Use doing to shape your being. And the fourth was to be conscious of the environment that you're in. Some environments will amplify the voice of the imposter syndrome. Best to steer clear of those where you can. I'd love to know what you thought of that episode. If you've got comments, feedback, I want to share your own experience of imposter syndrome. There's a contact page on the Women Talk Work website, or you can tweet me at Claire A. Conroy. That's Claire with no I, C-L-A-R-E. If you'd like to hear more Women Talk Work, you can subscribe via iTunes or stream via the website www.womentalkwork.com. Be sure to like the Facebook page to receive notifications of new episodes. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be delighted if you could share it with others. And finally, thanks to YWCA Canberra for their support for the podcast through the Great Ideas Small Grants Program.